That seems to be one of the fundamental desires of our age, whoever we are, whatever our background, whether we're old or young, whatever religion we might follow or not follow, whether we'd call ourselves Christians or not Christians, is the desire to be happy. It's something we all want, isn't it? The desire to be happy, and so that impacts how we live, the kind of decisions we make in life. It impacts the big stuff. I will take this job. I will marry this person or not this person. I will live here. I will buy this house. And, of course, the little everyday decisions too. I'm going to sit here this morning. I'm going to watch this film. I'm going to cut my hair like this. I'm going to wear these socks today. I'm not going to eat this aubergine. Why would you? (laughs) And so if you stick into Google how to be happy, as you can imagine, our favourite search engine responds with a whole variety of useful advice for us. The thing I found surprising was not that happiness was achievable, allegedly, but that it was mostly through stopping doing certain things. It's what we don't do that makes us happy. So if you get rid of negative behaviours, traits, attitudes, actions, then that elusive happiness is, is just around the corner for you. What kind of stuff? So firstly, stop doing these ten things right now to be happy. Blaming, whining, impressing, controlling, interrupting, criticising and so on. Get rid of that stuff from your life and you'll be happy. Fifteen things you should give up to make you happy. Next one. Next one. Six things happy people never do. Interested? They, they, don't, they never mind other people's business. They never find self-worth from others. They never rely on others. They never hold on to resentment. They never spend lots of time in negative emotions. And they never resist the truth. That is, they're, they're kind of self-aware. Fourthly. Stop all this pleasure-seeking. You want to be happy? Then stop looking for it and live. And they are a fascinating read, and no doubt they are useful and true, and they're really helpful nuggets for, their, for us in life. But it's striking that without exception, almost without exception, happiness was found by looking in on self, by analysing what I do or what I shouldn't do. That is what makes you happy. But the wisdom that we've seen week on week on week in Proverbs coming from the lips of Solomon has been, do you want to be happy, wise, blessed, fulfilled? You want to live the life that you were made to live? Well, the issue at root isn't what we do or what we don't do. It's the fact that we're not walking with the God who made us. That's what it comes down to. We don't know him. We don't know the one for whom we were made. It's as fundamental as breathing, says Solomon. And all these negative traits and attitudes and behaviours are are like being slaves to others for our self-worth or or holding on to resentments are, are symptoms of that bigger issue. And so Solomon says, be wise. Be wise. Know the one who made it all. Trust him. But as we reach chapter 8... If you were here last week, I wonder if you're thinking, it's a bit less appealing. 
Last week in chapter 7, do you remember the image there, the picture that he used? The image was of the prostitute. Sin was the seducer. She was attractive and alluring, and, and she wanted you to believe the lies that she tells. And we think we're in control, and we think we're the master, and it turns out we're, we're just the puppets, driven by desires and attitudes and appetites. We're not free as we thought we were. We're, we're trapped and stuck. Like, like the ring in Lord of the Rings. It, it desires to have you, to master you, to destroy you. And the outcome from last week, from sin the prostitute, well, verse 21, with persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose, till an arrow pierces his liver, like a darting bird uh, darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. He finishes, now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Don't let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many of the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her houseway is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. So chapter 7, she had done her PR work very well. She sold the product excellently, but Solomon said, don't be duped. This is where it leads. It leads you to your death. Chapter 8. Have a look at verse 5. It's a little less attractive, isn't it? He says, His message is for those who are simple and foolish. It's for people like me. I take it people like you. And to be honest, if you've been here week on week on week through the summer, you will find similar challenges and ideas this week. There's talk of the folly of a life without wisdom. There's talk of the preciousness of wisdom. There's the challenge that Solomon sets before us to listen to his words. And so if you've been here week on week on week, are you beginning to kind of tune these things out? Why does he keep repeating himself? Why is Solomon going over the same material again and again and again, chapter by chapter, week in, week out? Well, let me ask you a question. What's changed in your life? Because I take it by chapter 8, he says, are you getting it yet? Have I persuaded you of the importance of wisdom yet? I'm not meaning we sort life out. I'm not meaning everything changes like that, overnight transformation. But little steps. Are there little steps week by week as we desire wisdom? We said in week one, ours is an information-rich age. We've got Twitter streams bombarding us. We've got RSS feeds with blogs. We've got information coming out of our ears. And we just sort of jet ski over the top. Just grabbing what we need. And Solomon says, scuba dive. Be wise. Dig into God's word. Reflect, meditate, ponder, chew. Live wisely.
Have I convinced you yet? Says Solomon. How is this wisdom project going for you week on week? What's different? And to persuade us this week, it's a passage that begins at street level and then gets enormous. He says it's got everyday relevance and the nitty gritty stuff of tomorrow morning because Lady Wisdom calls out to us from the town gate, but then she soars above time and space. She was there from the very beginning, and her fruit will be seen in all eternity. And so first point then we see, we live in a world that needs God's wisdom. Verse 1 to 21. And Lady Wisdom speaks, and hers is a voice to listen to. Verse 1, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. By the gate leading to the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud, To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all humanity. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Last week, chapter 7, God's... Well, the, the, the wisdom there was behind closed doors. It was secret and private and unknowable. This week it's, pr- it's public. It's out in the open. Verse 3, it's beside the gate leading to the city at the entrance. Wisdom doesn't hide away in the monastery. It's everyday stuff. In the ancient city, the city gates were the most public place. They functioned as law courts. They functioned as places for political plotting and campaigning. They functioned as a place for commerce, people buying and selling stuff. Sometimes people think, well, God was there just to start it all off. He just starts the ball rolling and then sits back and sees what happens. But no, 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 what Solomon's saying here is God's wisdom has a point to make in the midst of everyday stuff. It's relevant, it's practical, it's not just for Sundays, it's for Mondays. It's for all of life. And so by standing by the city gates, verse 3, wisdom is offering God's guidance on the practicalities of civic life, on how we do society. Of course, our context is different, and Christians will disagree as to quite how far to push this, but it seems to me God has got something to say as to how we live as citizens how we live as employers, how we engage in our world, perhaps for people who work in the legal system, maybe your solicitors or lawyers, maybe for people who work in politics, local government, policy making, maybe just a citizen of society. God's wisdom is for all of life. The danger is we believe the line, it just gets squeezed into our hearts, and it's just for me and God. No, it impacts how we live. It's essential for those entering the city to participate in life. Then we need God's wisdom for justice and peace. It's a voice to listen to because it's a voice that is good, verse 6 to 11. It seems to me ours is a world of too many words. Too many people have got something to say. And so with that comes cynicism. Can we trust these people? Will they deliver? Well, here we see that God's word is good. We can trust him. 
we can have certainty. So look at some of the language in verses 6 to 11 with me. There are adjectives he uses there. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. Right and true and just and upright. And God's wisdom is like this because that is what he is like. You can lean on him. You can rely on him and his words. And so, verse 10, his words are valuable. They are to be treasured. Given a choice of God's word or an enormous pile of silver or gold, which would you go for? God's word or winning the lottery? What would be most precious to you? I suspect too easily we're often conned by the shining sparkles of what we can see now. The dreams and the hopes and the ideas of the short-term reality rather than the long-term gain. And gold and money and rubies and silver, verse 10, aren't bad things. But next to God's instruction, they're relativized. Wisdom is more precious worth latching on to, especially if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian or you're just not sure here this morning, because we can easily believe the lie that God's word is restrictive and archaic, and God is here to rob us of our joy and our freedom. And so to do away with him and his word and to get rid of the shackles that bind us, well, then we will find happiness. Then life will be good. But don't believe that, because when you walk out of the, on the God of life, So you find death. It's the story of our culture increasingly walking out on God. And where happiness is increasingly elusive. I know people at this church who have found for themselves that they believe the promises of sin. And that they were duped. Like the mythical sirens as they sang to passers-by. From their boats. They promise you much. They just want to destroy you. Do you remember how Odysseus got past the sirens? Back to school. Do you remember he put beeswax in, in his crew's ears so they could get through? And avoid the sirens song. Do you remember how Jason, though, and the Argonauts, how he resisted the sirens? It was the work of Orpheus, the musician. He, he played a more beautiful song so that they'd be attracted to that rather than the sirens. And so we need to trust that God's wisdom is more beautiful, that we treasure it more, that his ways are more rewarding, that he is more satisfying because, verse 11, wisdom is more precious than rubies and nothing you desire can compare with her. God's wisdom is more precious more trustworthy, more reliable, more satisfying. And so we see that hers is a a wisdom, a voice to rule by, verse 12 to 16. Have a look at verse 15 and 16. By me kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me princes govern and nobles all who rule on earth. The kind of people we prayed for a little earlier in the service leaders of our world, of our countries, of our nation. 
people in power, those who are wise. And wisdom says, as you rise through the ranks, as you get ready for public office, don't think you can outgrow God's wisdom. Verse 15, for kings to reign upon, for rulers to issue just decrees, for princes to govern and nobles and all who rule upon the earth. They need wisdom. They need our prayers. But I take it as well, when we combine that verse with verse 5, it's quite striking. Because those in power who need God's wisdom need to recognize that they are, do you remember, simple and foolish. That they are to keep listening. As Sarah already has, can I encourage you to pray for your leaders here at Magdalen Road. We're not kings, we're not rulers, we're not princes and we're not nobles. But pray that we would keep knowing our foolishness and our simplicity. That we might be humble. That we would lead wisely that we would lead well. I don't know as you've gone through Proverbs whether you've had that nagging issue that I've had in my mind. And that is, we listen to Solomon and what he says is good. But if you know your Bibles, you will know that Solomon's story does not end well. It's interesting, isn't it? Solomon is not Disney. It is not happily ever after. It all goes wrong. It seems to me that is in part because he stopped listening to God. He forgot the stuff that he had taught others. He was intoxicated by foreign women. He was intoxicated by the allure of political alliances. He was deceived by their foreign gods. And he stopped listening. Other voices crowded in. So if you're one who rules, in any sense of that word... Maybe people under you at work. Maybe you've risen or you have plans to rise. Then keep listening. Take care to rule well. Be humble. Remember verse 5. Write it out. Stick it on your wall. Whatever your rank, you're still simple and foolish. And you still need to listen to God. It's only his wisdom that can make you happy, that can make you satisfied both for now and for the future. Finally, verse 17 to 21 of our first point. A voice that eternally satisfies. Verse 17, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honour, enduring wealth and prosperity. So it's not as if we're doing away with riches when we follow God's way. No, no, they are part of the package too. But what we get is better, verse 19. My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. The fruit of wisdom isn't a big bank balance. Piles of money. Savings to, to gloat over. He's talking about true life forever. His fruit is better than gold. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me, making their treasuries full. And friends, we know this side of the cross, that that inheritance comes from God's wise plan of Jesus. 
the gospel. And Lady Wisdom, in chapter 8, personified wisdom, points us ahead to Christ. He is a, she is a type of Christ. And yet, like all types of the Old Testament that point ahead to Jesus, he is better. The wisdom of Christ is greater. Jesus says, my wisdom is greater than Solomon. It is through me and through my work on the cross that this inheritance comes. This blessing is yours. Of course, it's our prayer that, that Miriam, that all the children here at Magdalen Road, would, would know that Christ for themselves. That wisdom of one greater than Solomon. Know the richness of life. Know the inheritance that comes from Jesus. The relationship that we were made for. The, the relationship that can satisfy. That is good. We need to know the God who made the world and who rescues the world. And so Solomon says, ours is a world that needs God's wisdom. Why? Well, because it's a world that is built upon God's wisdom. That is how he designed it. I'm going to read again from verse 22 um, through to 31. And I want you to notice as I read it, this is an orderly world founded on wisdom. Okay, so verse 22 of chapter 8. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there was no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place. When he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. So Solomon says, God made the world in an ordered manner. We're not living on a fluke. This is not random. This is not a product of chance. No, no, he established that the boundaries of the seas, he established the foundations of the earth, the mountains that were set in place, the, the heavens were established by him. And from the very, very, very beginning, God had an agent by which he created. He made it with wisdom. Wisdom who was there from the beginning, which means he made it good, which means it was delightful. Now, you might know this passage has been tantalizing for theologians down the ages. Because there's a sense in which in Proverbs 8, even here, we see some kind of a plurality in God. An early glimpse of the fuller revelation later on that we get of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We say, who was this wisdom? Who was with God at the beginning? Who was the one through whom God made it all? And yet it seems to me, whilst theologians have been excited down the ages about these verses, 
seems to me too there have been people who have drawn wrong conclusions and that's been unhelpful because they've forgotten this is poetry, this is metaphor. So Arius in the 4th century, it's one of the heretics of the early church or not church, is a famous example of this. Jehovah's Witnesses of our day have followed in his footsteps to our doorsteps because of course if we say that this wisdom here was Jesus literally and that we are to read these verses in Proverbs 8 literally, and here it says God made Jesus. Verse 22, the Lord brought him forth as the first of his works. Verse 25, he was given birth. Verse 24, he was given birth. So is Jesus simply the first created being? Is that what's going on? Is Jesus not eternal? Is Jesus part of the creation? Was there a time when Jesus was not? Or indeed, before this wisdom was born, does that mean that God was not wise? What was he like before wisdom turned up? You see the danger? Whilst this is a tantalizing taste of what is to come, and of course in some sense it does point forward to and foreshadow the coming of Christ, of course it does, we must remember Solomon wasn't writing a systematic theology textbook. Rather, he was writing poetry. To ask questions of it that were not meant to be asked will leave us confused. Some of you look confused. Come and chat to me afterwards over one of the Langley's cakes. Now, having said all that, when we reach John's Gospel, or when we reach Colossians 1 in the New Testament, truths are in much sharper focus, and we do see the wisdom of God taking on flesh, and we do see Jesus was pre-existent to the world. He was there from the very, very beginning. That he takes on a body. In the words of the song that we sang, you're the word of God the Father. You're the author of creation who takes on flesh. In the words of John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all. Or in Colossians 1, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And of his ministry in Colossae, Paul says, my goal for this church is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This side of the cross, we have a fuller picture. But the glimpses we get in places like Proverbs 8 give us a better grasp and understanding as to who Jesus is. is, Our king is a mediator of a better covenant. Our citizenship is in a better kingdom. And God made it all with wisdom, which means he made it good, which means it's delightful. But the fact that we need Proverbs shows that something has gone wrong. The world that's described 
in Proverbs 8. The goodness, the delightfulness of that world isn't the world that we find today. We've walked out on God, and so we've become fools. And so now we prefer folly and death. Keep going, nearly there. And so verse 32 to 36, ours is a broken world that must choose wisdom. Let me read them again to us. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway for those who find me, find life, and receive favor from the Lord. For those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Do you see verse 35 and 36? There are only two alternatives. That is what he leaves ringing in our ears. That is the message he wants us to take away. Either we find God's wisdom or we fail to find God's wisdom. Either we find Christ or we fail to find him. And if you find him, verse 35, then you find life. And if you fail to find him, verse 36, well then you find death. You must love death, he says. He doesn't pull any punches. He says it's as if you're a self-harmer if you don't find Christ. And so we say, well, how do you find this wisdom? Where does it come from? Where does this life come from? Tell me, what's the verb in verse 32? And 33 and 34. What is the verb? Listen. Now then, my children, listen to me. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Blessed are those who listen to me. The application of today is to listen. I don't know what that means for you. Maybe you're here and you aren't a Christian And perhaps it means to to do something like a Christianity Explored course. To to listen to what God says, to to explore his message about Jesus. A chance to ask your questions. We plan to hold another one in the autumn, so if that would interest you, come and grab me afterwards. Maybe it simply means that you come back next week. You listen. Hear God's word as it's read again, as it's explained again. Maybe you don't have a Bible. If you can see one near you, we would love for you to have that. Take that with you and read it. That is our gift to you. Listen to what God says through his living and active word. Maybe it's it's asking that person who brought you along those nagging questions that you're just a bit too scared to ask. This is the chance on the way home to say, I've got some questions. I'd like to know what you say about that. Maybe if you're already a Christian, it is the encouragement to keep listening. Perhaps you feel the temptation, like Solomon, to to be drawn off to other things, other things that promise you life. Maybe it's novelty is what you're after, and the call to keep going back to the cross just feels a bit passe, and you want something else. 
Keep listening. Listen and be wise. Listen each day and find life. As I've reflected this week on, you can tell what's been a mammoth passage, and I've looked ahead to all that might be in this year to come. The uncertainties for us as a church, it's potentially a very big year for many of us as individuals and corporately. It's liberating and comforting and encouraging to know what God says to us all. He says, do you want to be happy? Do you want to thrive and flourish this year? Do you want to know what I ask of you? Listen. Keep listening. Listen and trust me. Listen and find life. Listen and be wise.